This is Setting the Table, a podcast from the Table Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Little Rock. I'm Steve Schubert. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we're talking about a topic that's not very comfortable for most people to discuss. We're discussing circumcision and why God instructed Abraham to circumcise himself and his household. Here's senior pastor Michael Gallup. I asked Michaela, I was like, should we do the circumcising the flesh of your foreskins with our kids? She's like, I don't want to explain that today. So normally they're in here for a scripture reading, but that was why we they left beforehand. I mean, it's something to talk about, but she had something else planned. Uh, us, on the other hand, we're going to talk a lot about that, So, which is interesting. Maybe, maybe it's a little awkward, maybe it's a little uncomfortable, but we, we kind of have to because that's where we are in the story. But not only that, this is, I would argue, and I think some other scholars would too, this may be the um, kind of really the crux of the whole story. So if you think um, about the culture in which the story came to us from, we've been studying Genesis, and we're looking right now particularly at the Abraham narrative. Uh, This was first given to us or first disseminated amongst folks through the spoken word. They were oral storytellers. And so one of the devices that they would use to help with retention, help them share the story, is a thing called a chiasm. Chiasm is, excuse me, just a fancy word for X. (laughs) It's like this. But basically, if you think of like a greater than sign, you structure the story kind of like this. And so the beginning of the story and the end of the story correspond, and then it kind of all comes to the center. And so when you look at the story of Abraham, the whole thing forms a chiasm. So you begin and end with genealogical data. And then you see the call of Abraham, and that corresponds with the call of faith that he has with his son Isaac, the promise uh, delivered and the promise fulfilled. Then you see the famine in Egypt, and so Abram will uh, offer his sister, I'm sorry, his wife as a sister to kind of protect themselves. You see a corresponding story at the end where, again, Sarah is offered as a sister for protection. You see Abraham falling out with Lot over possessions, and then the story right before the Sarah sister's wife one is another story of Lot's humiliation. You see Sodom and Gomorrah in both these stories. You go a little bit closer You see Abram as a warrior who goes and saves the kings. He's dealing with the kings of Sodom. He's saving people. And right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, you see Abraham praying to God that he would save Sodom and Gomorrah. You go in a little tighter and you see the covenant given, the promise of a child given to Abraham. And right before that one, you see the promise of child given to Sarah. You go in a little tighter and have Hagar, the story of the other in their camp who is expelled corresponds to the story of the others, the three strangers who are welcomed into the camp. And then at the core, the singular story that's not paralleled, is Genesis 17 and the story of circumcision. And even when you get into Genesis 17, it itself also has a similar chiastic structure. We have God instituting his covenant with Abraham, the institution of the circumcision, and then the promise reiterated to Sarah. And so even within this center point of the chiasm, we have a chiasm, and the point is circumcision. That's a little weird. It seems a little strange to us. In fact, as I was doing my preparation, um, I came across this little skit from Jim Gaffigan about circumcision. We're going to play it for you guys. In the Bible, Abraham circumcised himself. Wow. (laughs) I can't even get to the bank before it closes. 
<laughs> Abraham did it. Yeah. God told him to do it. Would have loved to have overheard that conversation. Abraham, oh, hey, God, how you doing? I need you to do something for me. Oh, sure, you're God. I need you to circumcise yourself. I think we got a bad connection. Uh, can you send me an email? Are you on Facebook yet? Tell you, those challenges in the Bible took a leap in difficulty there. You know, it's like, don't eat this apple, build me a boat, cut off part of your penis. <laughs> what if I build you two boats? How did Abraham even tell his wife, you know? Maybe he didn't, he was just getting out of the shower. She was like, what the hell have you done? <laughs> Honey, I can explain. God told me to do it. If God told you to jump off a bridge, if God told you to sacrifice our first... Actually, I have to talk to you about that one. It's hilarious. I mean, it, it, it counts us. So we come to this story, and it just really catches us guard, especially when we kind of participate in the reality of what is happening. I mean, it's, maybe we've heard circumcision, and we've been in enough Christian circles that it just kind of passes over like no big deal. But this is a tremendously odd occurrence. So why? Why is this at the crux of Abraham's story? Why this act? Well, let's spend some time exploring the text. And I think perhaps, if the Lord is willing, he'll begin to open our eyes to see what he is doing amongst us and in Abraham. So the story begins, chapter 17, verse 1. Abraham is 99 years old. And so if we remember back with the story of Hagar and Ishmael, and his experience, it's, it's been several years, about 13, 14 years since the birth of Ishmael. So God has made this promise to him. And, and if you guys have been coming regularly, you may be getting a little tired. Like, okay, God, we've been promising and promising and promising. And this has only been a few weeks for us. I mean, I, as I'm preparing this, I'm like, all right, I'm ready for Isaac to be born. Because every week it's like we're dealing with the reiteration and the re kind of uh, sense of affirmation that God is going to fulfill this promise. And yet we're still waiting. Imagine Abraham, 99 years old. It's been about 24 years since the first promise was given to him. And he's been on this journey with nothing. It says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, this is a massive statement. And this statement really sets off everything that follows in this account of circumcision. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. So first, God gives himself a name. This is the first time he presents himself with this name. It's El Shaddai. Maybe you've heard that in the Hebrew. Later, he'll reveal himself as Yahweh or Jehovah. Uh, but we see that he was not known by that name to Abraham and to his descendants. It wasn't until Moses that he revealed himself as such. And so they knew him as El Shaddai. And what does El Shaddai mean? I mean, God Almighty, yes. But this idea is that God is all-powerful. There's a sense of sufficiency. The Hebrew word literally means the God who suffices. God comes to him and says, I'm the God who's able, who is able, who is willing and able to do what I said I will do. And he calls Abraham to live a certain way. He says, in light of this reality that I am the God who is sufficient, I'm the God who's all-powerful, walk before me and blameless. Now, this is a, a formation of a command that God has given or, or description of a lifestyle that we see throughout the Old Testament. It becomes kind of uh, 
uh, typical or archetypal for what it means to live a righteous life, to walk before God and be blameless. It's also often translated perfect, to be perfect. Now, when I read this, I immediately kind of was like, this is, that's too much. <laughs> God, you're asking too much for me. You want me to be perfect? Like, I can't be perfect. I, I, was, I was overwhelmed with that idea. And so I began to dig into that, not, not to try and find a solution so I could get off the hook, but to see what does God mean by that? What, what does he want for me? And what's really beautiful about the Hebrew language and why I spend time talking about it is that it's, it's so grounded and rooted. So in our Western world, a lot of our words are very abstract. We, we have words to describe really kind of confounding things, and they really don't mean anything in and of themselves. It's like we, we have these words like existential and um, dispensational, and it's like, what does that mean? What is that even tied to? It, and it has meaning, it has purpose, but it's, but it's kind of hard to grab, grasp our mind uh, onto these ideas. But for the Hebrews, every one of these sort of abstract concepts was grounded in a very earthy, metaphor. And so what is God saying here? He says, walk before me. The literal Hebrew says, walk before my face, which is to say, walk in my sight. Walk so that I can see you. And immediately as I was unpacking that, I thought, I get that. You know, one of my favorite pastimes with my children is go hiking. We love to go, you know, go explore in the mountains or a trail in the wilderness. And my kids have way more energy and enthusiasm than us, and usually in front of us, way in front of us. And we've always made a rule with them that stay within our sight. If you can't see us, we can't see you. And so that was always the rule. Stay where we can see you. We literally said, walk in front of me where I can see you. <laughs> Similar to what God is saying to him. And why is that? I mean, it's not because we're trying to be spoil sports. We're not trying to ruin their fun. We trust them. We believe them. We, we want them to be able to have their own sense of agency about how they explore and experience the wilderness and the trail. Yet at the same time, their care, uh, their safety falls on my shoulders, Michaela and my shoulders. And so if we can't see them, we can't protect them. But more than that, I think on a really sweet side, I enjoy watching them. I enjoy seeing them alive. I enjoy seeing them look at butterflies and point at things and say, look at that, and dig in the dirt and all the things that they do when we go on a trail. I say stay in front of me because I want to protect them, but also say stay in front of me because I want to enjoy my relationship with them. And I believe that we see a bit of this happening in this metaphor for God and Abraham. Now, the metaphor for walking, again, in the Hebrew world, that means to live your life, but I think it's very literal, to walk. We see this as the very beginning of our narrative, that this is kind of the quintessential act that humanity and God do together. After the fall, Adam and Eve are hiding, and God comes to walk, and they're missing. They had an appointment. It was time to go on their walk, and they're not there. They're hidden. Later, we'll see Enoch walked with God, and then he's ushered away and surpasses the fate of death. We see Noah walked with God and was blameless, the same word. Again, there's something unique about that. And so he calls Abram to that same sort of experience, to live his life with him under the protection of the Almighty and in the gaze of his joy. And he calls him to be blameless. Well, this is where my mind really, this was something I learned. Uh, the word blameless, when you begin to look at it in the Hebrew, it, it means that it has the connotation of perfection. But for them, what did perfection mean? The word means to be unhindered, the sense of not covered, 
so that nothing is held back. And so this word will be used later when you talk about the sacrifices in the Levitical system, that you'd bring forth a lamb and it was unblemished. The idea wasn't that it didn't have a spot on it, but that you held nothing back. Everything was laid out before them. This is, at its core, a relational term. Now, it does have this connotation of living righteously, doing the right thing, but to do the right thing is to be completely bare before God. And all of a sudden, it hit me. God is asking Abraham to walk in his sight, completely exposed. And all of a sudden, I'm like, ah, Genesis 2 starts popping up in my head. To be naked and to know no shame. That's what he's calling him to. That's the expression of blamelessness, this walking before him, this metaphor is that nothing would be held back. God calls to Abraham to totally expose himself. Just like he did to Adam and Eve, who are hiding in their shame, he says, come out of hiding. And he's calling Abraham, and I would argue all of us, to come out of our hiding and to live, to walk before him with nothing hidden, nothing held back, nothing covered up. Maybe you're starting to connect the dots, why this maybe has something to do with circumcision. Verse 2, God says, continues his promise, I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. And then Abram fell on his face. I love this. This is really the first time we see Abram in this position. He's made himself prostrate before the Lord. This is an act of utter and total submission. But even more than that, it's an act of humiliation. It's a way of saying, like, I'm undone. God says, be before me, blameless, and I will do this for you, the Lord Almighty, the one who is sufficient. And Abram falls on his face. And the name that God gives, he is affirming that he is limitless, and yet Abraham shows that he is very limited. He's full of shame and full of places of hiding. I can imagine as God has said this to him, he falls down thinking that maybe the promise that had just been made, the promise in chapter 15, has maybe he's botched it. You know, this whole handling of the deal by uh, getting Hagar pregnant and then having her kicked out of the camp and this whole kind of messy situation. He's thinking, man, I really try to take matters in my own hand. As we've said time and time again, he's trying to fabricate or manufacture the promise on his own. And God says, no, I'm the one who is sufficient. And I am the one who will make you exceedingly numerous. And Abraham is exposed to his folly, and he falls on his face. And this is what God says to him, starting in verse 4. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Finally. And it's so hard to say Abram when I'm... It's it's Abraham. Okay. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make a nation of you. And kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you. And your offspring with you, I'm sorry, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan for perpetual, in Hebrew, everlasting, never ending, perpetual holding. And I will be there. 
God gives three speeches in chapter 17. This is the first one. He's made this appeal to Abraham, to his name, his power, his sufficiency. He's made this appeal of what he requires of Abraham, to live a life unhidden, to be naked and unashamed in spirit and soul and all of his being before him. And in his humbleness, Abraham lays on his face and God goes into this discourse and begins to make several promises. it's, It's just jumps out at you as you read this, how much God is the actor. In fact, he says five times within these four, four, uh, four verses, I will. I will do this, and I will do this, and I will do this, and I will do this. God's in a saying, like, let me show you how I am sufficient. I will make your name great. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. I will establish my covenant between you and me for everlasting to be your God. I will give to you and your offspring after you this land. I will be their God. Over and over and over again, God is affirming that he is the covenant keeper, the promise keeper. He said, I said I will do it and I will. This is a tremendous statement of power. In fact, as you kind of compare it to what we see in the promises given before this, God is expanding. All of a sudden, we have new things kind of added to the promise. You would think that maybe it would go the opposite way. He's called him to be blameless. Abraham's on his face because his life hasn't been blameless. He's hidden. He's tried to manufacture the promise. He's botched things up with Ishmael and Hagar. And yet God expands the reaches of this promise. He makes sure that Isaac also will be exalted and blessed. That his, uh, not only would he be a uh, father of many, but his descendants would be exceedingly bountiful, a multitude, exceedingly fruitful. Again, it's supposed to perk our attention to be fruitful and multiply, right? That was the command given to Adam in the garden. This is our destiny as a humanity. He calls Abram to be naked before him and to walk with him, and he tells him that he will make him fruitful, that he will multiply his offspring, and that kings shall come from him. Another new thing. Calling to mind again, Genesis 1, and the dominion, the kingly rule over creation. He's ushering Abraham back into the intimacy of the garden. He's ushering him back into the perfection of his good creation. He's ushering him into a a new identity as a new Adam, a new humanity, and a new creation. This is massive, and this is big. And his promise is that this covenant, this covenant to be his God and to be the God of his ancestors would be everlasting. This is another new addition to the promise that this covenant would never end. Big. El Shaddai is showing off. And the core piece of this, I think, is the shift from Abram to Abraham. If we remember, names are really, really important throughout the Scripture. I mean, almost every story we've talked about, we're like, okay, this is what this person's name means, and see how it's a big deal in this story. Well, Abraham's no different. But what's really interesting about him is there doesn't seem to be this major shift in his name. Abram simply means exalted father, high father. It kind of sounds like just really synonymous with what Abraham means, which means father of nations or father of a multitude. Kind of sounds like the same thing, and yet I think this is a pivotal piece of the story. God is giving him a new name. 
And I think there's several layers to why this is pivotal, but the first one I think we have to get is in this context of a new creation, a new Adam. What does God do in the creative act? One of his key roles is naming. And in his naming, he gives purpose. He gives identity. And here with Abram, he says, you are Abraham. What's fascinating to me is it's not this core reversal of who he is, but it's a fulfillment of who he is always supposed to be. I think Abraham's on his face because he feels like this promise is too much. It's unbelievable. It's beyond the limits of his belief and his imagination. And God says, oh no, I will do all this. And more than that, I will still call you father. But not only are you the exalted father, you're the father, you're the father of nations, the father of many. You're father to the max. And so God addresses Abraham now in the new name in verse 9. God says to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you shall be circumcised when he is eight days old including the slave born in your house and the one bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring. Both the slave born in your house and the one bought with your money must be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Here's God's second speech. And here's where things get weird. You know, prior it's like, okay, it kind of makes sense. It follows what we've studied. God's making promises. Promises get bigger. That's great. God's powerful. He's going to do this. Like, we get that. Like, God's kind of established that. He's just, like, really doubled down on it here. But now he's asking us to do, or asking Abraham at least, something wild. To circumcise the flesh of his foreskin. Something that's really important to note, and that's uh, given to us in the scriptures, that this is a sign of the covenant, which is to mean it's a signifier. It's supposed to tell us, uh, give us an image to understand what the covenant is. It's, it's not the covenant in and of itself, but a sign of it. The covenant's already been given. The covenant was made in chapter 15. I will be your God, you will be my people, I'll make you exceedingly numerous, I will give you a son, and the world will be blessed through him. But here we get a sign of that covenant. And it seems kind of odd that the sign of the covenant would be to cut the foreskin, the flesh of the foreskin, not only of Abraham's penis, but of every male in their camp. And and if you notice, like God takes a lot of time to really make that clear. He talks about your slaves and those you bought, and then he repeats it. The slave and the one you bought shall be circumcised. It's kind of tough to read this. It gets very repetitive, but God is trying to say every male. This is all-inclusive. There is no one who will miss the knife. Circumcise the flesh. When is this to happen? Immediately for Abraham and them, because this is the dawn of something new. But for children that are born amongst them, on what day? The eighth. Now, as we're reading this, as we're reading Genesis, and we're just a few minutes away, as if you're reading this in a sit-down straight through, you're going to have the days of creation flashing in your mind. Seven days. 
It says, on the eighth day. It's a new day. It's a new week. It's new creation. The eighth day from, on the Jewish calendar would be Sunday. Now, we kind of see the connection with Jesus being raised on that day. But he's saying that something new is happening. This is not only a sign of this covenant, but this is a sign of a new creation. Abraham, the new name. Fruitful, multiplying, naked before me, in front of my face, walking with the Lord on the eighth day. It's just all coming together. God's saying, I'm doing something new in you. And the sign is the flesh. Why? Why? This is the place, this is the place of Abraham's greatest shame. I think it's pretty obvious in the text. I mean, you think to be born with the name Abram. I mean, to be born with a name that says, I am an exalted father. And again, names gave you your sense of identity. They spoke a word of prophecy over a brand new child to say who you will be and what you will do. And so all throughout his life, Abram has grown up with this identity that he would be an exalted father. And then one day, late in life, despite the pain of having to marry a woman who was barren, and having no natural children of his own, well past his birthing age, the Lord appears to him and calls him on a special mission and makes this amazing, huge promise to him that he would be blessed and that he would be blessed to have a child. And that through this child, all the families of the world would be blessed. All of a sudden, he begins to hear the fulfillment of this prophecy in his name. I'm going to be the exalted father. And here we are 24 years later, and there's no fruition. Sexual organ was a place of shame for him, a place of incompetence, and in the story of Hagar, a place of disobedience. It is the place of shame for him. And God says, There, that's the place I want to touch. And maybe that sounds weird, but to me, it sounds beautiful. That's the place that was hidden. That was the place. Abraham said, anywhere but there. I mean, if you think about the nature of the story, the promise is that he will have a child. And God asks him to touch the place of his shame, but not only that, to mutilate it, to cut it. I mean, you know, we maybe are thinking of this in our modern medical imagination, but this was a long time ago. This was a long time before we had the science of sterilization, let alone metal. So it's very likely that this happened with some sort of sharp stone. Abraham is 99 years old, and he's performing a surgery upon himself. This isn't just some act. This isn't just some sacrifice. This is life-threatening. But more than that, it's threatening to mutilate. It's threatening to cut off the very thing that he needs to fulfill the promise. In chapter 16, right before this, Abraham takes himself his matter, this matter into his own hands. He tries to manufacture the promise through this place in himself, in disobedience and in shame. And God says, I want you to cut it. And he makes this far-reaching totality of uh, who should experience this sign, including the slaves, which is an odd inclusion, but it brings to mind Hagar. Just, just in case you think that you might mutilate yourself and you try and pull the same stunt and use one of your slaves to impregnate Sarah, we're going to cut them all. 
off. I had one friend I was reading, and he said uh, he imagined Abraham looking to God and saying, couldn't we just get (laughs) T-shirts? No, because the T-shirt isn't the promise. The T-shirt isn't the place of shame. What God wants to do in him is to touch this place of shame, not just to touch it, but to transform it, to show himself as El Shaddai. And to show Abraham who he really is. Now remember the, the name change? It's kind of odd that it doesn't change very much. I think all of a sudden this name, Abram, that he's carried around his neck like this flashing neon sign of incompetence. Like this joke of who he was. All of a sudden has been redeemed. It's been made new. God touches the place of our greatest shame and it becomes the place of his glory. I mean, I I can't say that enough. God comes to us and asks us to expose our places of our greatest shame, which is to be blameless before him, to hold nothing back. And it's that very place that he wants to make his glory manifest, that spot. Not in spite of it, not instead of it, but in it. And through it, he says at the end there, this will be my covenant in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Flesh here is finally beginning to take on the great metaphor that it will become in the New Testament as a symbol for our schemes, the ways in which we try and manufacture the promise to produce the good, to try and create ourselves in the image of God. The flesh will be seen as of something that needs to be discarded, just as it is here in the circumcision ritual. As Jeremiah will prophesy, as Moses speaks about, the circumcision is just a sign of something that needs to happen within our own hearts, that the flesh of our very being at the core of who we are needs to be cut away, which makes it utterly tremendous when we read John 1. It says, the Word, who was God, became flesh. Jesus took on our great shame. He took it on. He experienced the same shame that Abram knew in the joke of his name. The same shame that he knew in his incompetence and his inability and his disobedience. Jesus took it on. And Jesus, too, was cut off. He experienced the fullness of that shame as he died on a cross, naked. Naked. God ends this speech with this line, any male among you who's uncircumcised, in fact, he doubles it, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. I mean, think about what he's saying. He's saying, in a sense, if you don't cut yourself off, you'll be cut off. I hear an echo of something that Jesus would say in various ways, unless you die, You'll never live. This isn't about you have to do this procedure so that you get God's blessing. No, God is calling us into this place of blamelessness, this unadorned, unhidden, totally exposed, totally before him life in which our places of shame, the places where we're most unwilling to expose, most unwilling to expose through the process of cutting off. He says, unless you show me that, you can't experience my glory. 
This isn't an if-then type of a thing. God's saying, you want to experience the transformation that I am offering you? You've got to give it all to me. Do you want to know what life is? Everlasting, abundant, and eternal life that don't hold any of your life back from me. Give it all to me. So that the place of our shame might be the place where his glory is manifest. God gives a final speech. And this one's for Sarah. Sarah gets in on the action. In case we think this is all male-dominant thing, not at all. Even though the sign is for the men, Sarah's brought into this. Sarah, your wife, you shall not call Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, meaning princess. The woman who spent 90 years lamenting that she couldn't do the thing that her husband so desperately wanted. That she couldn't do the thing that God had prophesied over her. God gives her this name of royalty and speaks to the fact that she would be blessed. And just like he said to Abraham, that nations would come from her and kings would come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. (laughs) Can a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Can Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live in your sight. He's, trying to, he's still trying to do it. El Shaddai is limitless, and yet his faith is so limited. Let's, God, I, don't, I just don't get it. I don't get it. Let's just go with Ishmael. And God said, No. But your wife Sarah shall bear you a son, and you shall name him Laughter. The place of our shame becomes the place of his glory. You shall name him Isaac, which means laughter, and I will establish my covenant with him, everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will bless him and make him fruitful and exceedingly numerous. There's the Genesis 1 language again. He shall be the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation, but my covenant will be established with Isaac, with laughter, whom Sarah, princess, shall bear to you at this season next year. And when he had finished talking to him, God went up from Abraham. And Abraham took his son Ishmael and all the slaves born in his house or bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And his son Ishmael was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. The very day God, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. All the men of his house, slaves born in the house, and those bought money from the foreigner were circumcised with him. Just as God had spoken to the totality of what needed to happen, Abraham, despite the limits of his faith, is able to still act in faith. In echoes, I hear of the man in the gospel said, God, I believe, help my unbelief. We see the same totality of God's, act, of God's ask in Abraham's action. So what does that mean for us? I I think what we see here in Abraham is him acting on this. Him, even in his faithlessness, finding God still following through and being faithful. That as he's laying on the ground, prostrate again, completely out of his mind about how this could possibly happen, laughing at the folly of the situation, God works in his midst, and it changes Abraham. This thing which was unfathomable to him now is something he can action. 
I think this is one of the most beautiful parts of the story. God starts with this speech. He says, I will, I will, I will, I will. And the story ends with Abraham did, Abraham did, Abraham did. Not just that he responded to God's call and faithful action, but that God was watching him. I think maybe like I watched my kids, participating in the beauty of his nature, nothing hidden back, knowing that Abraham had it within him all along because he is his and he made him. And I think in many ways that's the story that we inhabit. That God is calling us into this place that we are circumcised in our hearts. This isn't a work that we do. We, we read this morning that God said, I will circumcise your heart. I will circumcise your heart so that, so that you may love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and live. I think that's the promise we live within, is, is that God is asking us to walk in His sight, unhindered, uncovered, that we would give to Him, offer to Him all of ourselves, especially that place in us that's the most shameful, so that He Himself, through His Son, may circumcise the flesh of our hearts, that He may touch that place of our greatest shame and make it the place where His glory is manifest. I began to reflect on my own story. I was like, where is that place to me? And I got a lot of those places, but the one that most stood out to me was my voice. Uh, from early on in my life, I just talked. I talked, 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 talked. Uh, I remember at one point, um, uh, some of my earliest memories are actually around things that I had said. I remember sitting around a group with my mom and was reflecting on the, I was three, and I said, uh, Mama, you know what I think the universe is? I think it is a picture that God painted. And I remember these people, my mom and her friends, going, wow, this is, you know, they were really, this was remarkable to them that this child would say that, that this was in me. And I began to hear in that this sense of promise, that I could affect something with my voice, that I had the ability to see and communicate, even at this early age. And this was something that I was meant to do. I just knew that in myself from early on. A corresponding memory with that is riding with my dad much, not much longer, and I'm sharing with him what's going on in my life. And I know I've shared this with you guys before, but bears repeating. As I'm sharing, my dad tells me to shut up. And he says, boy, you can talk the ears off a brass monkey. Which is funny, but what I heard in that moment was the exact opposite of what I had heard with my mom. That my voice was a problem. My voice could hurt people. could make them not want me. And I began to learn to shut up. In fact, I learned to shut up so much that I began to develop a speech impediment. And so, I don't even know that's how you say impediment. Every now and then when I'm up here, you'll hear little bits and pieces of it where I smash words or I mispronounce things. But um, in first grade, every day for an hour, I'd go down to Miss Coates' room for speech therapy because I couldn't talk well. And she'd work with me and would help me to learn to enunciate and pronounce. We never dealt with what was going on inside of me. It was just surface. And so I learned to say words correctly, but I saw this fear of my voice. More than anything, I had that this place was a place of shame in me. In fact, I even experienced it around the speech therapy I received from Ms. Coates as one of my mom's friends, and I'm from the South, but she said, you know, Mikey sounds like a Yankee now, and, which is to say that the work that I had done to learn how to speak right was somehow shameful. 
I began to learn to hide and hide and hide. And I can tell you guys, no one was more surprised than me when God called me to be a preacher. When he said, you will live your life, your vocation will be centered around using your voice. Not just on a Sunday morning, not just in a sermon, but all of life. That every conversation you have will be an opportunity to speak words of life and revelation and beauty. And I said, God, anywhere but there. Don't touch me there. I don't, I don't want that. I don't want that. Yet here I am 12 years later, still speaking in the place of my greatest shame, which I hope, by God's grace, by his promise, by El Shaddai's sufficiency, it's a place where his glory is manifest. Not because I learned to talk better, not because I got over myself, but precisely because it was my place of shame that I could share with you that most vulnerable part of me, that I could open myself by the grace of God that he has opened up in me with you. And I pray, I pray by his spirit that that would encourage you to open yourself up, to open that place up to him. I mean, we look to the cross. I think the cross is another sign of the covenant, just like circumcision, where we see this thing that most threatens the promise becomes a place where the promise takes root and blossoms and bears fruit. The knife that was on the foreskin that threatened the promise of childhood was the very means in which God's glory was revealed and Isaac was born. We look at the cross where the Messiah was hanging and dying. The giver of life and salvation looked defeated, the greatest threat to the promise we'd ever seen. And yet it's precisely through that and in that that all things were made new. As we saw life itself dying, death died, and life was risen. The place of our greatest shame in the hands of God becomes the place where his glory is most manifest in our lives. That, that, that's a part, that's a story, and that's a sign of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've called us into the open. You've called us out of hiding. And you've asked us to give to you that place where we say not there. But you've shown us how you handle us, how you handle our shame, and it's with grace, and it's with love. God, you expose unto us a strength that we never knew was possible. Your spirit dwelling within us and enabling us to do the thing that we never thought we could possibly do. That where death abounds in us, life abounds all the more. That is our hope. That is our prayer. That, God, you would give us courage. That even as we lay on our face laughing at this idea, the impossibility of it, that somewhere, somehow, the faith the size of a mustard seed would take hold in us. That in our faithlessness, you would be faithful. And somehow, some way, we would see, we would see that you will do what you have said. You will redeem all of us. You will make new every part of us. I pray that we would live into the truth and the beauty of the circumcision of our hearts, the hope of your glory. 
the grace of your gospel. We pray these things in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to Setting the Table, a podcast from the Table Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Little Rock. Setting the Table is available on iTunes and your favorite podcast apps. You can learn more about us at thetablelittlerock.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at thetablelr. And we'd love to have you join us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at Red and Blue, Arkansas in downtown Little Rock. Our address is 1415 West 7th Street. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good.